We'll be in, uh, again, we'll hit a little bit of Matthew 28, but we'll be Luke 23. Uh, we'll be into John chapter 19 and 20. Uh, those, those general areas uh, throughout the morning here. I, uh, I know I've been one of the, the outspoken ones giving Pastor a hard time about uh, finishing up the life of Christ, and I have to, I'm swallowing my words a little bit this week as I'm going through and trying to, trying to get to a certain point in the notes and get to a certain point so when he comes back, he can wrap it up. And I'm looking and saying, how do you cover all this material in such a little bit of time? So I have to, I have to eat crow a little bit this week and, and look and say, okay, I'm not going to get as far as I wanted to, uh, but it'll, it'll happen. We'll get, we'll get through, hopefully, the burial and resurrection uh, throughout the day. As we were finishing up last week, we were talking about the seven sayings of Christ on the cross. We went through them. We looked, and we were getting to the point where Christ has now, he's died on the cross. And uh, as he's died on the cross, there are a number of things that, that are, that are going to happen during that time. We know that there is an earthquake that's going to happen. Uh, the temple of the veil is rent in two. number of in, unique aspects about that uh, from the top to the bottom. This is very much a God thing. We talked about the distance, the thickness, estimated like a hand width, about four to six inches uh, for the thickness of the veil, the, the height, the size. This was not just a, a guy getting upset. This was not the, the power team, if you've ever seen them, where they rip phone books and it takes all of their energy and effort just to rip a phone book. This is very much a, a God thing that is happening. And even Hebrews chapter 10 is going to remind us that the, the, renting, the rendering of the veil, the, the ripping of it, is going to highlight some of those dynamics where, where God is removing this barrier in this system. The Old Testament system is going to be put away. The sacrifices are going to be done away with. The priesthood is going to be done away with. Now we have that priesthood of believers that we have as uh, believers where we can go directly to God we don't have this, this hierarchy of, of going through. There are bodies of the dead saints raised from the dead. We have that occurring in Matthew 27. The centurion makes this confession where he finally looks, and after seeing everything that's happening, he, he looks and says, this is the Son of God. So all these things are happening while Jesus Christ is on the cross, and we, we start moving to the, the next part in the, the chronology that's happening, trying to lay out a general Harmony, it's called, when they take the synoptics, the Gospels, and we put them together, try and figure out, okay, what are the general timelines? And we'll do that a little bit this morning as we go through. What happens here in John chapter 19, the, uh, the, John is the only one who's recording this, this particular aspect, um, verses 31 to 38, where the, uh, the religious leaders are coming now and they're saying, hey, we want to get, uh, get him off of the cross. We want to get Jesus Christ down. Uh, and so the Jews, therefore, uh, because it was the day of preparation, uh, verse 31 says, it's, it's that day leading up Sabbath is going to start right around sunset on Friday evening. They're in during the day of Friday. It is the day of preparation. So they're looking to prepare, getting themselves ready, getting their homes ready for Passover that evening. And so they're trying to prepare, trying to hasten things up. They do not want these bodies to potentially defile themselves, to potentially defile the area. So they petition Pilate. They say, can we go? Can we hasten this up? One of the, one of the cultural ways to do that was to break the legs. Again, as Pastor went through a couple weeks ago, when the, the, the legs being supported were able to give the person the ability to rise up, take that breath, and it would prolong the agony and the death on that cross. So by crushing the legs, breaking, breaking those legs, now you have a situation where they're no longer able to, to completely pull themselves up 
It will, the asphyxiation will happen faster. The individual will die at a much uh, quicker rate. So we know that, though, with Psalm 3410, Zechariah chapter 12, there are, <clears throat> there are the, there's the aspect of prophecy where not a bone of him is going to be broken. So as we know from, from the background here, and most of you having that background, when the, the centurion arrives there, when the, the guards arrive there, they look, they see that Jesus is already dead. So rather than crushing his legs, they, they pierce him with the, the spear in the side, and what comes out? Blood and water, good. Water and blood come, come flowing out. Jesus Christ is, is dead. And it's important to note, uh, verse 34, you know, it says that the, they spear him, John nineteen thirty four. they spear him, immediately comes out blood and water. They, they knew, verse 33, but when they were coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead. That, that might seem like a little thing. I'm going to make a couple redundant statements here today that you're going to look and go, man, I feel like I'm in kindergarten again. But when they, when they go and they see Jesus, he is, there's, there's no way around this. Christ is dead. Now, that might not seem like a big deal right now. But these, remember, these, these Roman soldiers, they were acquainted with death. They were professionals at, at killing people, making sure they were dead. They knew what somebody who had passed away looked like. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't this, this is my first time. Are they, aren't they? I, I don't know. I don't want to touch. The, this is just old hat to them. So they know, they're, they're walking up and they see, they're like, Christ is dead. He's, he's, already, he's already dead. So, so that, part, that part happens. As, as we keep going now, they're going to take Jesus Christ off the, the, the cross and, and he's going to happen. Now in all these different aspects, here are your passages that deal with the burial of Jesus Christ and all the, the rituals, the different individuals that happen. So let's talk about a couple of these individuals. Uh, when, we, when we look at the burial of Christ. Joseph of Arimathea. What, what do we know about, about Joseph? Uh, here's, here's a couple things that, that we know when we look at the different passages. Matthew chapter 27, uh, verse 57 says that he was a rich man. He was a disciple of, of Jesus Christ. I didn't get everything up there, but uh, he's a disciple of Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 15 uh, tells us that he was a prominent member of the council. He's part of the Sanhedrin. He was well known in the, uh, in the area. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't like this random guy from nowhere shows up. They, they knew who Joseph was. Uh, Luke chapter 23, you're there. It says he was a member, verse 50, it says he's a member of the council. He's a good, he's a righteous, he's a godly man. He's, he's a follower of Christ. And John highlights an aspect too that uh, in verse 38 of chapter 19, uh, John highlights that he's a secret disciple. He's a disciple of Jesus, but he's a secret one for fear of the Jews. So this individual is, is there, and Joseph is going to seek and, and go to Pilate. He's going to become courageous and walk out. Even though he's been a secret follower, he's now going to go to, to Pilate and say, I would like an honorable burial for Jesus Christ. Now, that may seem nice, but we have to remember, this is, this is a, a controversial figure. Jesus Christ is not somebody, oh yeah, go ahead. Normally, a controversial figure or a criminal, they would, they would be taken out to mass graves and they would be put in, in, a, in a spot altogether. There wasn't the allowance. So one of the questions, why, why, would, Pilate, why would Pilate allow this? Why would he allow Jesus to be, to be released in this way? Maybe it was the influence of Joseph. Joseph being that prominent counsel, it seems like he at least has the clout to get before Pilate to, to ask him. Maybe it was, uh, some commentators highlight the fact that possibly it's to appease his conscience, where Pilate's already looking and saying, I don't find this man guilty. 
not sure that he's really should be put to death, but in order to appease my, you know what, I'll let the followers, I gave the religious leaders, remember, Pilate's always playing political. And you're going to see that happen again here in a few minutes, where he's looking, okay, I gave these, these religious leaders their way, now I want to keep peace with the, these followers of Jesus Christ, so we'll, we'll at least let them have a good burial. He just, and possibly it's just like, I just want this thing done with. I think that's one of the reasons, too, where he's looking and he's going to say, yeah, put somebody in front of the tomb. I don't care. Just let's get this thing over with. Pilate's not looking and saying, oh, this is such a, a monumental moment. This is more of one of those frustrations. Remember, uh, we talked about that he's, he's at the last straw with the Roman government. They want him. They, the, he's done. If he goofs up here, he is done uh, with, with where he's at in his life. So we, we know that Joseph is going to come down. Even Nicodemus is with him. Uh, and Nicodemus is going to, in John chapter 20, it talks about that when Nicodemus comes, he brings, uh, uh, bring, not 20, but verse nine, in chapter 19, he's going to bring with him 100 pounds of myrrh and aloe. He's, this is not just something where they quickly go about, even though they're in haste because of the day of preparation. They're trying to get done with things via Passover as well. But they're going, to, they're going to go and take care of what should have been done by any of the followers of Jesus. I think it's, a, it's an interesting aspect where all of a sudden you get all those individuals who are very much the public disciples of Jesus. They're all very much private right now. They're running in fear. They're hiding out. They're not sure what to do. And now you have these two individuals who for fear during their whole, the whole life of Jesus, they've been private, private, private. Now they're the ones who come to, to public light. Uh, and it's just interesting how you have that, that little bit of a flip that, that takes, takes place there. Now, what do we know about the tomb? So let's, let's talk about the tomb a little bit and uh, see, see what's going to happen. Now, in that whole process, Pilate is surprised, and he talks about it in Mark 19, uh, or Mark 15, verse 44. Uh, Pilate says, is he, you know, is he already dead? And so he summons a centurion. He says, hey, go question Go question whether or not I want to know if he's already dead. John 19, the same, same aspect where he sends him and he says, I can't believe this guy's already dead. It's only been a couple hours on the cross. Is he already dead? It's, it's just highlighting once again. It wasn't a mistake. They, weren't, they didn't make a mistake to say, oh, Jesus might not have been dead. Pilate's questioning him. The centurions, the, the Roman soldiers, they're all well aware that Jesus Christ at this point at this point is dead, which, which is going to play into when we start talking resurrection here. And we'll talk about some of the, the false theories and things that are out there uh, that, that, are, that occur. So what do, we, what do we know about the tomb? We know that from Matthew 27, it's Joseph's personal tomb. It was something that he had purchased. It was for, either for him or somebody in his family. But Joseph's, it is Joseph's tomb. This, I, I guess I just always, sometimes you gloss over details, I just always assumed the Roman soldiers rolled the, the stone in front of the tomb. But it actually says in Mark 15 that Joseph himself had this stone there. He rolled the stone in front of the tomb. It wasn't, it wasn't the Roman guards. It wasn't uh, Pilate or the, the religious leaders. But Joseph himself did that. No one had used this tomb. Luke 23 highlights that it had never been used before. Even highlighting that it may not have even been completely finished. It was just uh, newly hewn out. We know that Nicodemus worked with Joseph uh, on, in the burial, not necessarily with the tomb. But we can highlight this other fact. Christ is buried here. We know that they, laid, they took the body and they laid, him, they laid him in the tomb. It wasn't 
Um, in John 19, uh, it says, Now in the, uh, in the body, they took the body, they bound it in linens with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. They went through the whole Jewish process, the custom, wrapping, anointing, putting layers upon layers of linen and aloes and, and spices, taking care of the individual, taking care of themselves to make sure that they were done in time so that they could still be uh, clean for, for Passover. They went through this all, but they knew. They, they set Jesus Christ down. A dead individual is buried. And this is, this is another important aspect. The ladies who have been following Jesus, remember there, last week we talked about there were the ladies of Galilee who Jesus stopped for a few moments and had a conversation after, uh, after the cross was uh, being uh, born by Siren of Cyrene. So Jesus stops, he talks with the ladies of Galilee. Other ladies, Mary Magdalene and Mary, uh, the other Mary, and Salome and Joanna, all, all of them around in this area, they're following after uh, Nicodemus and following after Joseph. They see where the, where the Jesus Christ was laid. So, so they're very well aware, whether it's in Matthew 27, 61, Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite of the grave. So, so they were there. 1547 in Mark, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to, to see where he was laid. These ladies, it was not... Uh, it was not just this random fact of, oh, well, yeah, it's over around the corner, around the bend, through the garden, and over there, that's where we buried him. They were very much intimately aware where Jesus Christ was laid, which, again, some of the theories that have arisen in regard to the resurrection, we'll, we'll talk about, we'll see how that helps uh, play into some of this. So we get to the point where Jesus is laid in the tomb, the day of preparation is finishing up. The Joseph and Nicodemus, they've rolled the stone in front of the tomb, but that's, that's not sufficient for the religious leaders. Uh, the religious leaders, they're, they're going to they're gonna catch some things that necessarily the others, the others don't, uh, even the disciples don't completely, whether they understand, get it, or they don't understand it, it comes, it comes in regard to the, the resurrection. The, uh, the religious leaders, if you, if you notice, um, down in uh, Matthew 27, Matthew's the only one who highlights uh, this account where the tomb is being guarded. And I believe there's a direct reason for it. He gives it at the end. He says that this, this lie that's going to be promoted by the Roman soldiers and by the, the council, it's reported widely among the Jews. Again, Matthew writing to a Jewish perspective audience. He looks and he says, here's, here's where we're at. So he is going to, he's going to highlight this. It, it says, uh, verse 62 and following, that uh, now the next day, which is the day the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. So we're talking, we're talking uh, Saturday, sometimes Saturday evening, looking and saying to them, uh, hey, we remember that when Jesus was alive, uh, that he was a deceiver. Verse 63 talks about that he was a deceiver, someone who was promoting these false truths. And so we don't want his false truths, his deception to go on anymore. So therefore, what we would like you to do is set a guard outside the tomb so that his disciples don't come in and steal the body. Can we seal the tomb off? And, he, and Pilate looks at them and says, okay, you know what, fine. He, you know, we don't want this deception. The, the Pharisees don't want, verse 64, uh, at the end, that this next deception would be greater than the first deception or fraud. They're, they're afraid that the disciples will get in, they'll steal the body, 
And they'll say, look, see, Jesus said he was going to rise from the dead. And it will just promote this cult in their mind to an even greater status. So they look at this, this individual and they say to Pilate, they say, hey, we want, we want you to do this. Now again, why does Pilate grant them this? I mean, let's, let's just get to the point here. Pilate's, I'm sure by this point, you're talking from Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Have you ever had that situation where somebody just continually is nagging on you for day in and day out and you're just like, I just want this to be done. Please just walk away or go. I'm, I'm tired of it. The individual keeps calling at work and you're like, fine, just whatever. Just take what you need. I'm tired of it. That's how, that's how re- these religious leaders have been since basically Thursday night with Pilate. Constantly coming to him, constantly putting this before him and, and pushing their agenda, getting what they want done, done. So now Pilate here is looking and saying, well, what do I do? He says, fine, just take, take what you need down in verse 65. You have a guard, go Make it as secure as you know how. So you, you do what you need to do. You make it secure. I'll provide the guards. Just do it. Does he do it out of political expediency? Probably. Possibly. You know, he, I just gave, gave uh, Joseph and Nicodemus the, the permission to go bury, bury this criminal, this controversial figure. You know, okay, I'll throw you a bone too. Fine. Go put, put your guards out in front. I'll even provide the guards. Just let's get this thing done with. And so they, they pass it off. Joseph is now, or not Joseph, the Pharisees and religious leaders now take the guards. They set them outside the tomb. They set a seal on the tomb, looking for the opportunity and saying, nobody is going to get in uh, into this tomb. And they went, they made the grave secure, and they put the seal on the stone, and, and Matthew ends the account there. So we know that the tomb, the tomb is guarded. And so Saturday, the rest of Saturday and evening, into early Sunday morning. Now, remember, continually thinking uh, Jewish calendar days. It's, it, it messes with our mind at times when we start thinking Saturday, Sunday, Monday, but we've got to think sunset to sunrise, sunset to, sun, be sunset, to sunset, thinking for, for a day. So now you're talking, you know, Jesus Christ is in the tomb already on Friday. Uh, he's in there all day Friday, sunset to sunset on Saturday. Now we're in again for a partial day. So we can, get our, we can get our three days, and pastors talked about that, so I won't rehearse all of the how do we get three days in, the, in three nights in the tomb and, and going through all of, all of that dynamic. But as we, as we get to Sunday morning, we're going we're gonna to see a shift here. Now, um, we, we look and say, okay, what's going to happen? There's a whole bunch that happens, and the gospel writers have some different perspectives as you start reading through. Like Mark will say it's dark out. John will say it was light. One will say it's at the dawn. Uh, and sometimes it's just simply, you know, was it, was it light out? Was it not light out? Some of it could be, all right, as they left their journey, it was from where they were to going to the tomb, it was dark. As they got to the tomb, it was light. I personally believe that it has to be, the resurrection had to take place um, after, after dawn, dealing with some of the different perspectives of timetables and three days in the tomb. And all. But you look and say, okay, what happens this morning is simply this. The ladies are on their way to the tomb. Okay, so, so here's a general timeline. They're on their way to the tomb, and you can find these, find these passages. We won't go through uh, all of them, but as you, as you start getting, Matthew 28 is going to deal with it. Mark 16, uh, verses 2 to 8. Luke 24, verses 1 to 8, and John chapter 20, uh, just uh, following one through the 
good chunk of the chapter there. Uh, but we won't go through all of it, but they're, they're there. So the event occurs a little after Sunday morning. Uh, what happens? We know that there is an earthquake. We know that there is an angel of the Lord who comes and uh, rolls away the tomb or the stone. Again, that he didn't roll the stone away from the tomb to let Jesus Christ out. Why, did, why was this, the, tomb, the stone rolled away? Yeah, and so others can get in so they can see and, and it is taken care of. Jesus doesn't need it. I mean, later on we're going to see he's going to walk through a door. He does not need the ability. The resurrected Christ does not need the stone uh, rolled away. So we, we have that happening. Who's involved? We have the guards. The guards are going to pass out. They're going to, they're going to out of terror, uh, they're, just, they're going to pass out as dead men. It says, you have the ladies who are going to come, then you're going to have John and Peter. They're going to show up a little bit later. Uh, but the ladies play a very instrumental role uh, in, in all of this initial happenings and findings. So the ladies make their way to the tomb. As they find the stone, uh, they find the stone rolled away and the tomb empty. Remember, even their conversation is like, who's going to roll the stone away? How are we going to be able to get in and, and to help? Um, maybe even highlighting the fact that they didn't even realize there was going to be a guard there or the seal because uh, they wouldn't have been allowed to get in. They were going to do some of the, the preparation or the, the continual anointing of the body. But they're on their way to the tomb. And when they get to the tomb, they're going to have this conversation with the, lady, or with the angels. The angels are going to look and say, hey, don't be afraid. Uh, don't, don't be afraid. He's not here. He's risen, uh, as, as he said. And he reminds them, remember, he even told you back in Galilee, he's told you before that after three days, he's going to rise again. But then he says, I want you to go and tell. And there's a really interesting note as you start reading through what Jesus initially tells everybody. He says, go and tell the disciples. He tells the ladies, go and tell them to meet. I'll meet them in Galilee. Remember, we're in Jerusalem. Galilee's in the north. Galilee's where most of them are from. They're all down in Jerusalem. He says, hey, you tell the disciples I'm risen and go tell them to go up to Galilee and we'll meet them there. And it, it comes up um, a couple different times. Uh, Matthew 20, verse uh, 7, it says, go tell his disciples uh, he is going before you into Galilee. Uh, it says it in Mark 16, uh, verse number 7, he's going before you into Galilee. Luke 24, again, he's still uh, in Galilee, so he's wanting them to go uh, toward, that, toward that place. The ladies, this is, as I was reading and, and doing some uh, work in the commentaries, I, was, I never thought about this whole aspect, but when you look at 1 Corinthians 15, when it talks about the gospel as a whole and the, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, these ladies have been there for every moment. Of, they've literally visualized and seen not just the gospel like we, we think about it in, in theory and in doctrine and in truth. They actually watched this play out. They watched the death of Christ. They were there observing the tomb when they saw him buried. They're here on that morning of the resurrection. The tomb is empty, and they're going to, they're going to be part of hearing from Jesus Christ. So the ladies do, do what they're told. They go, they find the disciples, and they talk with them. And what's interesting is Peter and John, right away, they're, they're looking and saying, okay, wait, the tomb's found empty. Um, and so they take off running. Uh, verse, Luke 24, 10 says that Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, all these other women are telling the apostles this. And the apostles, verse 11 is interesting. It says that the words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. They're like, there's no way. You're, you're talking gibberish. This isn't truth. 
So rather than putting trust in what has been told to them, they take off running because they want to see it with their own eyes. They want, to, they want to get there. So Peter and John take off. We know that John arrives first. He pokes his head into the tomb, looks around, doesn't see anything. Peter gets there. Peter goes into the tomb. What do they find? They find nothing. And yet when they get there, they see the grave clothes laying there neatly, orderly, not as though somebody would have come in and robbed the tomb, not as though somebody hastily took the body away and for some reason unwrapped the grave clothes. They see the grave clothes laying there. And an angel, an angel appears to them uh, while, while they're in there, talks with them, um, and they find, they find all these aspects, and they don't, uh, they don't understand what's all, what's all happening. Uh, John chapter 20, it says that uh, they find all of this. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb entered, uh, for they did not, verse 9, 20 verse 9 says, they did not understand the scriptures that he must be risen again from the dead. So there is that aspect here where they're still struggling with what is going on. We don't understand it completely. Though they heard the teachings, though they, they would have had a knowledge, an intellectual knowledge, they still didn't have that understanding of everything that was happening. So as they're walking out, it seems like maybe possibly in the whole harmony of everything, in John chapter 20, John highlights now uh, that Mary Magdalene is outside of the tomb. It seems like right after Peter, maybe Peter and John ran and Mary kept following them, hoping that she was going to see something. She gets there. Peter and John are going to leave, but Mary is still standing outside the tomb weeping, John 20, verse 11. And as she's weeping, she hears somebody. Somebody comes to her, two angels while they're sitting, one at the head, one at the, the feet of Jesus' body where he was laying. And then they look and they say, woman, why, why are you weeping? And her response, because they've taken away my Lord, and she's, she's there going around and crying. And uh, verse 14, when she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus was standing there. And she didn't know it was Jesus. She thinks it's the what? The gardener, yeah. So she's looking and saying, sir, if, if you've taken him, please just tell me where he is. I'll go, I'll go care for him. I just need to do this. And he looks at her and then he speaks. And he says, Mary, verse uh, 16, I believe it is. Yeah, verse 16. And she turns and she cries out, Master, Rabboni, or teacher. And she recognizes Jesus. And we have this first appearance of, uh, of Jesus. Now, she's going to be told again, hey, go and tell, stop clinging to me, but I want you to, to let them know uh, and to go out. So she's going she's gonna to take off. And Mary Magdalene, verse 18, she goes to the disciples. She's going to announce. And she's going to say, hey, I've seen the Lord and that he is, uh, all these things have happened. They're, they're still not, there's still not going to be this belief that's going to happen. They're not going to believe the ladies. Peter and John are going to return to the others, going to tell them what's happening. So there's this back and forth, how far it is from wherever they were staying to the tomb, we don't know. We don't know if it was a mile. We don't know if it was just around the corner. Uh, but we don't have an idea of how far. But we know there's this continual flow of back and forth, back and forth. Now, as, as Peter and John are going back to tell the others who are in the, the room that they're staying in, the other ladies uh, who, outside of Mary, but the other ladies who were with them, as they're walking, Matthew 28 highlights again, hey, as they're walking, Jesus appears to them. And as, as he appears to them, uh, he greets them. They came up, they, they took hold of his feet, they fall down, they worship him, and they're, they're holding on, and they're saying, uh, Jesus looks at them and says, don't be afraid. Don't, don't be fearful, but rather, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go. I want you to tell. 
I want you to go and tell my brethren that I'm leaving, again, Matthew 28, 10, I'm going to leave to go to Galilee. I want them to, to go up there. I want, I want to see their faith basically in action. Tell them to get going. Tell them I'm, a, I'm risen. Do they believe it? Is there that faith that they'll, they'll put it to action, that they'll go forward and head up toward Galilee on this journey? But again, we, we know that they're not going to, and even there he highlights at the end of verse 28.10, he highlights, he says, they're there in Galilee, they shall see me. So what, they, what they're longing for, they'll get if they, if they operate in faith. What they're longing for to see Jesus, that's what Peter and John, they want to run, they want to see it for themselves. And we're going to see that start becoming a theme of them wanting to see and touch and wrestling with belief, and their fear, and the faith that's going on here, and, and what's all happening. And uh, so, so they look, and they're saying, the ladies run back to the disciples and say, hey, we want you, we want you to go up to Galilee. That's what Jesus has said. But they, again, they're not going to believe. Right about, right about this time, it's inserted into the, uh, into the gospel accounts where, where Jesus appears uh, to, the, to the Jewish leaders again. Now, Matthew's going to insert more about the guards. He's going to highlight that at some point during this, the soldiers are going to bring their report to the chief priests. They're going to go to them and say, um, well, uh, the, uh, uh, he's gone. I mean, how do you, I mean, number one, we know typically, historically, there's either going to be a huge chastening of these individuals potentially put to death because they have failed in their responsibility to guard this tomb and to guard their, their property. It has been stolen. It has been taken. We even get that idea later on. Even though it's a, a person who is dead, in this case, Philippian jailer, he's ready to kill himself because he's fearful that all of the individuals are going to be taken away and, and removed. So they understand this is my responsibility. They know they're coming to them, swallowing pride, talking, and they're, they're going to talk with they're going to talk with the individuals, uh, the chief priests. The irony of some of the things that happened. Now remember in Matthew 28, verse 11 through 15 is where uh, the account is. He, they, they come to him and they tell him all that happened, you know, whether or not, and, and maybe, I mean, how much, do, how much can you tell him? I mean, you passed out as dead men. So, so you're there. I mean, maybe they said we saw an angel. We don't remember anything after that. But when we woke up, nobody's there. And the tomb is completely empty, and the stones rolled away, and we didn't move the stone, and we didn't break the seal, but it's all, it's all out of the way. But they tell them everything that they know, and then they had assembled uh, with the elders, the council. They got together and said, okay, what are we going to do here? We've got to either figure out a political spin to this. We've got to stop this. They did what we didn't want them to do. They got the body. Now they're going to promote this falsehood. They're going to they're promote this deception uh, that's going to take place. So they look, at, they look at them, and they give them a huge sum of money, we don't know exactly how much, but they give them this large sum of money and they say, okay, this is what you're going to say. So you're going to tell people that his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. The irony of that. First of all, we know it was the, the disciples even though we were asleep. You know, you're sli how does that work? But I know it was them. It had to be them. Who else is going to want to steal the body? But they were sleeping. While we were asleep, we saw the disciples take the body. So there's, there's complete irony here uh, in that. The deception, uh, the desperation of the lie. No one woke up when this massive stone was moved. I mean, it's not like, it's not this little pebble of a, of a stone 
But when you're moving stuff, you've, you've been in your house, even sometimes the littlest of noises, it jostles you, it wakes you up. Maybe these guards were just so exhausted from everything that was happening. They were sleeping on their watch, which they weren't supposed to be doing. They were, they were just completely out. Uh, the desperation of the lie goes even further when the, the religious leaders look and say, hey, by the way, if it gets back to Pilate, we will, we'll, we'll take care of that for you. We, we know how to deal with Pilate, and they did. They, they knew how to push his buttons and pull the strings. But they said, we'll, we'll take care of it. Well, you don't have to worry about it. You just keep promoting, promoting this, this falsehood, this lie. And this is where uh, Matthew highlights that the story becomes widely spread among the Jews. This, this deception to this day, uh, it says, is widely spread among the Jews, that the disciples came and stole the body. Jesus did not really resurrect. And when we talk about the resurrection, this, this is the, it's called the stolen body theory. There's other, there's other fancy titles for some of these. Um, but let's talk for a moment. Just uh, what I'll do is I'll explain some of the theories and just go ahead for a moment. From everything you know, you can talk to people around you if you want, or you can just write little notes to yourself if you want to. Like I, I didn't leave you a whole lot of room. There's a little bit of room on the back page. Uh, but from what we've already talked about or what you know about the resurrection, if someone came to you and said, hey, this is, this is what really happened to Jesus, how would, you, how would you combat that with either what we've talked about or what you know about the resurrection? So some other theories. Uh, the first one's called the swoon theory. I, I like the term. Sometimes it's more now called the res, uh, resuscitation theory. I just like the term swoon. I just, I don't know. It's got that nice little old term to it. I like it. Uh, the swoon theory is that Jesus really wasn't dead. In fact, he was just so exhausted from being on the cross and going through all of it, and even though the wound of the, the spear going through, he just lost a lot of blood. And when they took him off of the cross and they laid him in the tomb, he wasn't dead, but he just appeared to be dead. And the coldness and the coolness of the tomb and the ability of his body to rest and relax while in the tomb, it allowed his body to actually heal itself, and to, to be resuscitated. And so he didn't actually die. He just swooned. He just he almost like passed out in a, in a great way. And so he was resuscitated. So based on what we've talked about already or what you, what you know, how would you go ahead and write down, talk to the person next to you, come up with just a couple things you would say. Here's what I would say to that, that issue. All right, go ahead. Anyone? Anyone want to share? What's one thing? He's what? What would you say? Okay, he's been beaten. He's been whipped to the point of... of okay, the orderliness of the grave clothes. If he got up, you know, there's... I won't... Anyone else? All of the, the pericardial fluid, the water, the blood that comes out, 
they, he, he was what? He was dead. There, there's no way around this. I mean, the masters of death understood that he was dead. The, the grave clothes, how did, the, you know, how did he get out? You know, all the supernatural earthquake just happened to be a coincidence right at the right time, right at the right moment. It allowed him to get out. Yeah. Okay. The next one, another one that is a mass hallucination theory about the resurrection. That really all of these individuals had this mass hallucination about Jesus Christ. It now, it, it extended for a long time. I mean, we're talking 40 plus days that this hallucination extended for. And they all had the same hallucination and they all were able to simply recognize that, yeah, Jesus really, they wanted it so badly to, for Jesus to have resurrected that they all hallucinated that and that he was, that he was present and that he did resurrect. What would you, what would you write down? What would, what would be some things? Go ahead for a second, then I'll ask any of your thoughts. Any thoughts on the mass hallucination theory? What's that? Well, maybe the gall with the vinegar, but yeah, yeah. yeah no. <laughs> that... It's a struggle. How many of you, how many of you have ever, go ahead. Right. And, and even with the mass hallucination, if, if it goes on, even in 40 days, what happens after, okay, Pentecost happens, what happens to these disciples' lives? There's, it is this radical change. You're just going to radically change your life to the point of allowing yourself to be put to death because you had a, a really strong dream? Now, there are people in history who've, who've done a lot of crazy things based on dreams. And that, that is, there's, that's truth. That's happened. But for all of these individuals, how many of you, you ever, you ever see, a, you see an account happen? Okay, let's just say you see a car accident happen. And let's say it happens out on 422 after church, and we're all driving, we're all driving by it. We come back tonight, and everybody's going to tell the, the, their account of what happened. It's all going to be the exact same, isn't it? Every, all of our details are going to match up wonderfully. No, we all know we're going to see little things. We're going to, we might get the general ideas, but all these specifics that happen, and yet when you look at the gospel accounts, you look at the early church histories, there's this amazing uh, lining up of exactly what had happened down to days at times of exactly what happened. This one I like, the impersonation theory. There was this guy who apparently really was a great follower of Jesus and looked a lot like him, to the point where he had his mannerisms down, he had his speech patterns down, he had his abilities down, uh, and 
after he realized the opportunity that had arisen here when Jesus died and he knew about this resurrection thing, so he began to go around and impersonate Jesus Christ after the three days, fooling even those closest to him. I don't, we're not even going to take time <laughs> to deal with but but it is one of those ones that's out there. I was reading it, and I was, uh, Josh McDowell has some really good stuff on some of, these, some of these theories if you're ever looking for something. But I was reading, I'm like, seriously? But, you know, it's one of those theories that's out there. The wrong tomb theory is this does pop up often. The, the disciples and the ladies in their grief on Friday evening when they were burying, they, they just didn't know when they came back on Sunday morning, they didn't know really which tomb they had went to. They were in such shock that they went to, they actually went to the wrong tomb Sunday morning and Jesus never really resurrected. But because they didn't find him there, they promoted this idea that, that Jesus has resurrected. What are some of the, initially, just right off the top of your head, something that, as you hear that idea, what would, what would be some of your argumentation against that? Why would the guards stay at the wrong tomb? Great. The guards, the guards aspect there, great observation. What else? How many tombs are sealed with that, with that seal, with guards around them? What else? Did Joseph know it's his tomb? Good. He, he's going to let them know. What else? The what? The angels are present at this tomb. It's like, oh, well, they, the angels got the wrong tomb as well. So, you know, these, these angels just don't know uh, what's going on. What else? All the religious leaders have to do is produce a body. For half of these things, all they have to do is say, really, here it is. You got the wrong tomb? Let me roll back. That Here he is. Who else? Remember, I highlighted something about the ladies. They knew where the tomb was. They sat outside that tomb. They were weeping. They were well aware. It wasn't, it wasn't second and third and fourth hand information. They were, and the gospel writers make it a point to let us know that the ladies were there. One of the observations I made about the ladies, totally off subject, but uh, some of you better theologians than I, you can wrestle with this one. Uh, why is it that every, we, we often use the argument about Peter, when, they, when we talk about Peter and the list of disciples, he's always at the beginning, he's the prominent one, he's the, uh, the first one, whether he's the leader or whatever, but we, we've often heard that, that talked about. Other than, other than at the foot of the cross where Jesus is speaking directly to Mary, when you, when you look at all the lists of the ladies and the individuals who are there from the crucifixion to, to, into Acts, the very first person always mentioned is Mary Magdalene. I just, I never, I don't, I, I have no theological implications for that. I was just like, huh, that's really interesting. Why the person who most of us would probably look and go, okay, stay over there. You're good, Mary. You know, you, know, you had like these seven demons in you. You were out there. You were so far gone. And yet, she's continually, she's the first appearance by Jesus Christ to Mary. What it was, I, I don't know, still wrestling through it. Just observations. Sometimes we make those observations and we don't know what they mean, but just something to think about. So now what happens here is all of these things have been, been going on. There's the resurrection that's occurred, and we get to this point where we know that Jesus is resurrected. The, the gospel writers have highlighted that. The ladies are very much aware of what is happening. And Mark, Mark 16 gives just like this quick, quick brief. You know, two of them were on a road. They were walking along their way in the country. 
Um, and they went to, re they reported to the elders, but they did not believe them either. Uh, and, and you look and say, okay, what's going on there? Luke helps us. Mark is very much always boom, 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 boom. He's very much a gospel of action. He just lays it out, expecting you to know the story. Luke is going to take that physician's approach here a little bit, give us some more detail into, into what is happening. So you have the account of those traveling on the road to Emmaus. We know that there are two men, uh, two disciples, followers. Whether it was one of the inner 12 or not, doesn't seem like it is because it does give the name Cleopas uh, to, to one of those individuals, but they seem to have a very tight, intimate connection with the direct followers of Jesus Christ. They are on their way, uh, and we know that because, I mean, they know what the ladies have been saying this morning. They're well aware of Peter and John's actions. So they were present with this inner group of followers of Jesus Christ. They begin to go on their, their road to Emmaus. Now, I don't have a map up here, but I want you, where have the disciples been continually told to go to see Jesus? To Galilee. Galilee is in the north. Emmaus is directly, it's, it's south and west of Jerusalem, about seven miles. So they're going in, there's, there's no path up to Galilee that way. You'd have to go all the way to the coastline of the Mediterranean, go up that direction. Most of the Jewish paths that were, would go up would be either directly straight up from Jerusalem or around across the Jordan and then up. Those are your two main paths that they would take. These individuals are not going toward Galilee, but they're walking almost in a despair and a hopelessness, as you see in their words as it comes out. They're walking the opposite direction to get to Galilee. They're going, now whether or not it's just they're going home for the evening and, and taking a break to get away, that could be, but they're not going in the direction. If they want to see Jesus, if they want to see the resurrected Lord, they need to be going up to, to Galilee, but they're going in the opposite direction uh, Luke 24, 13 highlights it's the seven miles from Jerusalem. So now they're, they're going to start conversing with each other. And they're going to be talking about all these things that are happening. So they begin to speak about what's, what's been going on in Jerusalem. And uh, they're speaking about what the lady said, it highlights in the, in the verses. And along this time, Jesus Christ shows up, though they did not recognize him uh, when, when he approached uh, they, it says that he prevented or their eyes were prevented. They were hidden, whether it was he changed enough of his, his visage that they couldn't tell who he was or that there was a supernatural aspect where, where God did not at this point allow them to recognize uh, Jesus. Whatever, whatever dynamic, if it was Jesus changed or those individuals' eyes being prevented, which the, it seems to, to highlight that a little bit uh, in, verse, in verse 16, either way, they weren't able to tell right away that this was Jesus Christ. And as they're, as they're walking, they're beginning to, to talk with him. And verse 18 has some comic relief in it a little bit. Uh, Cleopas looks at him and says, Jesus says, what are you talking about? What's, what's going on here? And he looks and says, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem that's unaware of everything that's happening? Don't you know what's going on? I mean, if anybody understood everything that's going on, it's the guy who went through every single thing. And yet they look at him and they say, hey, uh, it's, it's at that point. We're, we're there. So they, they begin to talk to him and they say, let, let me tell you about this Jesus guy. They said he's a prophet who is mighty in words and deeds. We thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was the one who was going to come and to, to rescue us uh, from, from the tyranny of Rome, so to speak. And uh, they go through this. Now, the response of the followers, when they're talking through this whole account, 
mighty indeed. And then he talked about verse 20, how the chief priests, their rulers delivered him up to sentence to be crucified. They didn't think that was fair, that it was right. They were hoping that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel, chapter, or verse 21. And then they said he's been put away. He's been, uh, he's been uh, put to death. He's been buried. And there's almost this despair that comes out because they know they're on the third day. And the ladies look, they say, verse 22, but also some among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early this morning, they didn't find the body. And they saw, they saw a vision of the angels and they saw that there was nothing. But they're almost like, but we haven't seen him. We want, we want to see him. They said Peter and John went, but Peter and John did not see them. There's a little bit of hope here, but yet the hope seems to be very quickly fading as they're looking. And most of the disciples are at this point now where, where they, don't, they don't see uh, what's going on. And then Jesus stays with them a little bit longer and uh, stays with them longer and looks and says, okay, I'll, I'll stick around with you. It's getting to the evening time. They beg him, say, hey, please stay with us a little bit longer. So Jesus uh, acquiesces, stays with them. And then they, they're sitting around the table. He's going to point that everything in the Old Testament, all these things, the prophecies, the teachings, they're pointing to Christ. And he's, he's saying all these things. And he looks at them and he says, you, you, you foolish hearts. Um, you foolish men, I should say. Your hearts are slow to believe. He's like, it's there. You need to trust. You need to trust these ladies who've said that he's not here, he's risen. You need to trust the prophecies and everything that's been told you, all the teachings that you've heard. You need to be putting your faith in that and and trusting. And then there's this, maybe a flashback, though they're probably not in that Last Supper, but all of a sudden he breaks bread, he gives thanks, which is, we often hear that, you know, that Jesus would break the bread and give thanks. We think flashbacks Last Supper, even uh, for us, we look and it just sounds very, very community, Last supper But at that point, all of a sudden, whatever it is about him breaking bread and giving thanks, their eyes are opened. They look and they're like, wait, it's, and he's gone. And he, and he disappears and they take off. They recognize and they even say, when he was teaching, weren't our hearts burning? It's like, we almost knew that this was him, but we didn't believe, we couldn't see that it was, it was the case. So they quickly jump, jump on the nearest train, so to speak. No, they, they get running and they go back to Jerusalem, those seven miles uh, to Jerusalem. And as they're reporting to the disciples, they're there. They're going to tell them, hey, we were just on our way toward Emmaus and Jesus was with us. He appeared to us. And, and while he's there, now all of the other gospels are going to start chiming in on what's, what's happening here where, uh, well, Mark, Luke, and John are going to chime in. Uh, and it says, when they were there the first day, the doors are locked, John highlights, everything's sealed up, and Jesus is going to appear to them in their midst. And so now Jesus, uh, Jesus shows up, he's there, he's looking, he's talking with them, uh, and he, he looks, he says, peace be unto you, don't be afraid. I know you're fearful right now. Mark, uh, Matthew, Mark highlights that they felt like they, they had seen a spirit. And uh, Jesus rebukes them, uh, for their unbelief and hard heart. So he looks and says, you're wrong. You should have believed. I believe it's even highlighting, you should have believed what these ladies have been telling you all along. But in your hard-heartedness and your blindness of your eyes, you did not see, you did not believe what had already been taught to you, what you were well aware of. Luke is the one, uh, it talks about they were startled by the Spirit. It's, they were, whether it's just a, a completely startled or, or they're stepping back away, there was a startledness to, to the Spirit showing up, to Jesus showing up in the room. And yet Jesus looks and he says, he knows what they need. He says, here, see, come, touch, 
feel. I'm real. I, I'm, I'm, I'm the real person. You're there. And it's, he looks and he basically toward the end, he's like, um, do, you have, do you have any food? Do you have anything to eat? Uh, Luke 24, 41. He says, have you got anything to eat? So they broiled him some fish and he took it and he ate it. And uh, he, it's just highlighting that he's real. Uh, just real quick, we'll, we won't take a lot of time. The resurrected body of Jesus. Some of the things, this doesn't cover all of them, but from these passages, it was able to go through locked doors. His wounds were still visible. Uh, the body, though it was spirit, was material, which could be felt uh, by the other individuals. It was capable of consuming food. We could get into a bunch more, but for time, we won't, we won't do that. Because we want to get into the last little bit here, where with Jesus and the disciples in doubt. Now, take what we've been talking about already, the disciples and their unbelief, the disciples and their unbelief. And we are the one, we quickly throw, uh, throw uh, issue at Thomas. And, and, the, and John does highlight more about Thomas at the end. But the disciples all along have been doubting because they could not see, because they could not touch. That's why they run to the tomb. They want to see it with their own eyes. They don't want to believe the words that were being said. There's this continual aspect through the, through the Gospels. But the disciples, when they finally see, when they finally touch Jesus, there's this, there's this belief then. Jesus then is going to commission them and say, I want you to go with the message of forgiveness. I want you to, to go out and to tell people and to, to share uh, with them. And uh, they refuse to believe, Thomas does at this point, at the end of, the end of uh, John chapter 20, uh, Thomas is going to look and say, uh, verse 24, uh, but Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, uh, was not with him when Jesus was not with them when Jesus came, and he looks and basically verse twenty five. Unless I see the hand with the imprint of the nails, put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. And he's, he's very dogmatic about it. But remember, the disciples have been pretty much doing the same thing all along here. They've been showing this lack of doubt uh, that's that's been happening. So now we fast forward, nothing, nothing in the gospel account from that, from that Sunday evening all the way that whole next week, we have no account of anything that's happening with Jesus, with the disciples or anything. All we know is that by the time we get to eight days later, we basically are going to have a repeat performance where Jesus is going to give Thomas exactly what he needed, exactly what he desired, um, verses 26 through 31 of, of John chapter 20. So you have, he comes through the doors in the midst. They're shut. He's present. He's going to look at Thomas and he's going to say, see here, feel my hands, touch my side. It's me, Thomas. And Thomas makes the strongest of the confessions of any of the disciples to this point. He doesn't, he, he doesn't just look with joy. He looks and he says, my Lord and my God. He recognizes and he very proclaim, boldly proclaims, not just that you're my Lord, but you are my God. You are God. You are the Messiah. You are the one. And so he looks and Jesus looks and says, because you've seen me and believed, that's great. But he brings out that truth at the very end. Blessed are those who did not see and yet believe. That's us. And John flows into his purpose of the gospel. He says, that's why I'm writing this gospel. So that you can believe on Jesus Christ, who he is. And so as we, as we just talk through and we walk through some of the things that are happening here, we see that, you know, we, we can look and we can cast despair on Thomas or the disciples. But what about us? How is our faith? 
Does our faith impact our life? Is it active in our faith? Do we look? If we were told to go to Galilee, even though we haven't seen, will we go? When we're, when we're moved by the Spirit to go do something, do we do it? How do we respond in our faith? We'll talk about that a little bit more in worship service. Uh, we're going to wrap up here, and we'll get ready to worship. Thank you.